I understand that you are kind of, well, you're, you're very passionate about pivot tables. That's embarrassing. <laughs> that is actually really embarrassing to hear you say that. But yes, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to In Person, brought to you by Bizabo. In each episode of In Person, we explore the world's most daring events and the people who make them happen. In case you and I haven't already met, I'm Brandon Raps. Here's a quick question for you. Have you ever, say, radically overhauled a 24,000-person event? If the answer is yes, did you also have to then radically overhaul it again just 60 days out? Nicola Kastner, Global Head of Event Marketing Strategy at SAP, has. SAP is one of the biggest software companies on the planet. They have over 425,000 customers in 180 countries. It is estimated that roughly 77% of all global transactions come in contact with SAP software. To support their multinational business strategy, SAP executes thousands of events across the globe. Working alongside the head of global events at SAP, Nicola is in charge of overseeing event strategy for the company. Before Nicola formally joined the team in 2016, she was assisting SAP in a consultative capacity for several years. All said and done, Nicola has accumulated over 20 years of events experience working on both the agency and the in-house side. In this interview, Nicola shares how she partnered with the head of content marketing at SAP to radically transform Sapphire Now, SAP's annual flagship conference. Along the way, we discussed how Sapphire Now fits into a larger ABM strategy, how Nicola and her team create data-driven content journeys, what IKEA, Disney World, and grocery shopping have to do with professional events, and why it pays to be an Excel nerd. Okay, let's get to it. It's it's kind of crazy, but Excel is my happy place. It's my natural place. It's where I feel comfortable. So if I have a stressful day, I'll actually go and start playing around in data and Excel to try and get some insights out of that rather than dealing with some of the challenging things that I'd rather not deal with. But early on in my career, I realized that I could use Excel to analyze data to give me the insights and that I didn't have to wait for anybody else to give them to me. And I actually think it's become a differentiator in my career and helped me become who I am today. But I believe really strongly about them. When I mentor people, I tell them that they need to learn how to use pivot tables. And I actually even had a client once say to me that my my passion for pivot tables was embarrassing. Embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And a client said that. Yes. Apparently, he didn't feel like he needed to learn pivot tables like I suggested. Well, it sounds like that he was missing out on that differentiator. Exactly. Yep. I I really believe in it. Okay. So I'm I'm really excited to see how this passion for for Excel and pivot tables and crunching data is going to intersect with the rest of our conversation today. Probably uh, a lot. <laughs> fantastic. So to set the stage for uh, what we're going to talk about, could you tell us a little, just briefly, a little bit more about SAP? I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar, but for, for those who are not, and your responsibilities there as the global head of event marketing strategy. Sure. So SAP is the market leader in enterprise application software and help companies of all sizes, large, small, run at their best. In fact, 77% of the world's business transactions run on our software, 
But most people aren't aware of that because we're behind the scenes enabling our clients and customers most of the time. And my role at SAP as head of event strategy is to really look at our portfolio of events and make sure that what we do is driving maximum value both for us as a company, but also for our attendees and customers that attend. And a big part of that is a lot of the events that you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Including your time at SAP Ariba, you've been with SAP for over three years. And before then, you spent over two decades working on the agency side. Could you tell us a little bit more about your career and how it has led you to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. So when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to get paid to travel. That was about all I knew I wanted nice. to do when I grew up. And so I figured the way that I could achieve that goal was not to become an engineer like my father, who always got to travel but only got to see if office space. I really could think about taking an industry or pursuing an industry in hospitality and tourism. So I studied hospitality and tourism at school. And during my program there, I took a course on incentive travel. And that was sort of that first, you know, we talked about me being a data geek and, and my passion for Excel and numbers. But during this incentive travel course, I learned about the business side of events and how travel as a motivator could drive business results. So that was sort of the first bit that really got me hooked and where I really actually understood that I liked data and that business side. So after leaving school, I worked on the DMC side and the hotel side and then moved to the agency side for about 15 years in total over mm. a number of different agencies. Also took three years off to be a mom. I actually think being a mom makes me a better leader and I learned a lot about myself in that time when I was off. Yeah. After 15 years on the agency side, I then actually started my own business, a consulting company, and SAP was one of my first customers. So as a non-Spanish or Portuguese-speaking Canadian living, living in Toronto, it didn't make much sense in paper, but I spent three years supporting SAP's strategy in Latin America, and it was a fantastic experience. And then went on and worked with SAP to run a number of different initiatives within the Global Events Organization. I went away from SAP. I consulted with another company for about a year exclusively and then was approached to join SAP Ariba, working for the CMO as a member of her leadership team driving event strategy within the portfolio. And that CMO was Alicia Tillman, who is the CMO of SAP today. And after probably a few months after Alicia moved roles, she reached out to me about a new role that she wanted to create within the global events organization, really focused on the portfolio and our approach and how did we drive those maximum values for our attendees in the company. So for about four months, I was hybrid in role. And then March of, I guess, 20. 2018, yes, it feels like it was a lot longer ago, but it wasn't. I moved over to the Global Events Organization exclusively. Then the journey gets even more convoluted because several months after joining the team, so end of August in 2018, uh, I was asked to take on interim leadership of the Global Events Organization. Turned out to be seven months, so maybe not quite as interim as I had anticipated at mm -hmm. the time, but fabulous learning opportunity for me and really allowed me to start this transformation in, in high gear on Sapphire now, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, and then you asked why events um, and, and why am I so passionate about events? Right. I think I, I got into the business because I wanted to travel, but understanding that there's a business side to events, which are sometimes seen as more, you know, 
we're not party planners for sure or what we do. And so the business side of it, I'm very passionate about. And back in early 2000, I was at the MP, MPIWEC conference or World Education Conference that was taking place in Toronto. And I took a session about event strategy. And ultimately, I believe that changed the course of my career. I can remember where I was sitting. I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember who the speaker was. And Who, who I, was the speaker? David Rich from George P. Johnson, actually. And I've reached out several times to tell him that he changed the course of my career. And I wow. actually hope that I can do that for others someday as well. But I left there so inspired. And it was really about connecting to the business side and using events to drive business performance and from that moment on, I haven't looked back. You have a lot of experience with events. You've, you've been working with SAP for some time. And I know that SAP produces many, many events. In fact, thousands across the world. However, the largest flagship event is Sapphire Now. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar, could you share with us what Sapphire Now is and the type of audience that attends? Sure, absolutely. So Sapphire is held every year in May or June in Orlando. Orlando's been our home since 2006. It's a three-day event that's made up of multiple events within one event. But this year, we in 2019, we had 24,000 attendees who are customers, prospects, and partners attend. What's interesting about Sapphire is that all of the SAP content is delivered on the show floor. And when I say content, I mean keynotes. I mean our content sessions, which are a thousand plus when you include the partner sessions as well. Our meeting center, which is 252 rooms alone and hosts over 5,000 meetings, our customer showcases, our demo stations, our partner expo, which hosts over 222 exhibitors this year to be exact, food and beverage, everything is in this one space. So we use a million square feet of continuous space. And so for our American listeners, that's 17 football fields of space that we built wow. the Sapphire show on. It's, it's big. Certainly get your steps in in, in, in <laughs> that week. And the only activity in the event that doesn't really take place on the show floor or in the associated areas around the show floor is our closing concert, which has become a staple of the program over the last probably 15 years. And that takes place on Thursday night. It's our closing closing event. And this year we had Lady Gaga perform, which was was really quite magical. And in terms of who comes, like I said, it's our customers, our prospects, and our partners that attend. And for us as a company, it's really important to us because it is that lighthouse moment in the year for our brand. It's also when we publicly debut our new strategy and messaging for the most part. And as well, and incredibly important for us as an organization, it is our largest pipeline generator of the year as well. Wow. Okay, so that sort of speaks to some of the business goals behind the, the event itself. Huge sales acceleration event. Yes. Uh, a lot of customers attending as well, and a lot of partners. Yes, exactly. You mentioned earlier that you were brought into this interim role to oversee the global event strategy, and that this became a permanent position. And part of that involved you being tasked with transforming, completely transforming Sapphire as we know it, which had been around for 30 years or so as of, I think, like May 2019. So what was the impetus for this change? What was the catalyst to really change the way things were going? Yeah, so just as a point of cl of clarification, I was actually brought in to the strategy role okay. um, to, to 
refine the portfolio and really think differently about the way we do things, and then took on the interim leadership position. But the interim leadership position actually worked as a catalyst for me to drive the change that I had been tasked to do, because now I was responsible for the team that actually ran it versus trying to influence the team. So I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason, and likely this was this was one of the reasons. But, you know, the thought behind why transform is our business has changed, our customers have changed, and our company's changed in the 30 years since Sapphire Now was created. And the software industry has changed. When Sapphire Now, and that's the official name, and the brand police will probably be upset with me, but often I forget to say now, so I'm just going to caveat that. And if you <laughs> hear me just call it Sapphire, it's just because it's laziness. But when Sapphire Now was invented, we sold on-premise ERP systems to an IT department. Cloud hadn't been invented yet, and cloud has fundamentally changed the way our customers consume and use our products. And today, as a company, we offer software solutions for the entire enterprise to allow companies to be intelligent and to run at their best. And so we sell to all different areas, marketing, sales, procurement, HR, just to name a few, and and not just IT. So an event that was designed for one product sat one audience is no longer relevant. And this transformation that we're going to talk about this year is part of a multi-year evolution that we've planned out as the organization in order to really just accelerate the pace of change as well as value to our customers through our event portfolio. And so in order to move the model, we knew we had to turn Sapphire outside in. And in order to do that, we needed to think customer first. We needed to think outcome orientated. What were our customers trying to solve for? We needed to ensure that the event was integrated into the customer journey and was part of integrated campaigns and tactics. You know, the the one three-day event is just a moment of time, and the event needs to live much longer than those three days. And we also wanted to make sure that it's attractive to new audiences. And, you know, as we reflected on the changes that we needed to make, and because our product set is so large— we realized that Sapphire had become like a grocery store, that our cu- we expected our customers or our attendees to wander the aisles and have, you know, using the, the, the food analogy, have a recipe, understand what ingredients they needed to make dinner, and then to wander those aisles to go find them versus capitalizing on the curation economy that's in place today and curating the solutions to our customers to help them solve their business challenges. And so that curation mentality and culture is sort of what inspired us to what we could create in the transformation. So there are a few things there I'd love to touch on. One of them is this idea of looking at this event as one important aspect of a multi-touch journey. And I know earlier we were talking about the importance of, uh, of looking at different marketing initiatives from this perspective. Does the term ABM get bandied about at SAP at all, or is are you looking at things multi-touch, but not necessarily? Oh, of course. ABM yeah. is a big part of our marketing strategy and a huge part of the approach that we take within the event because we have key customers that we want there. We have plans that are developed against those customers. So specific customer activities and programming are created by our sales team and our ABM marketing manager specifically around Sapphire and utilizing that as a tool as part of the entire ABM strategy. Sounds like there's a ton of alignment with the whole entire go-to-market team here. 
There has to be. Yeah. There there has to be. Fundamentally, that's the core and the foundation because if we're creating an event and an event strategy in isolation without alignment across that customer journey, across the rest of the company, and across what sales is trying to achieve, we're not going to be successful. What our job in global events is to do is to make sure that we balance what our company wants to achieve and what our customers are looking to achieve at the event and to find that right value proposition between the two. And the other thing you mentioned was going from this grocery store approach to, (laughs) I'm going to play around with that metaphor a little bit, a HelloFresh approach, Mm -hmm. uh, a Blue Apron approach. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly what the, in fact, in, in when we started to sell the new strategy internally, air quotations around sell that I just right, made there, right. we actually had a picture of Blue Apron. Uh, we had a grocery <laughs> store aisles and then we had Blue Apron to, to show the difference between the approaches. It sounds like knowing your attendee, knowing your, your customers and the accounts that you're speaking to is a huge part of this. What sort of data, would you say, if it, to look at a few pieces are key? So, um, that's a, that's a, that's a loaded question. question <laughs> and, you know, I, as, as the data geek that I am, I could spend hours rambling on about this. But one of the things that we've really focused on is what is the right information that we need to know about the people that attend our events in order to create the experience that they need. So, you know, we've we've actually narrowed down our focus to probably, I'd say, eight to ten insights that we really look at and capitalize on when we're designing the experience. You know, we absolutely focused on persona. We start with persona. When you've got 24,000 people, you cannot just look at an individual level while there are 24,000 individuals and we need to create 24,000 personalized experiences, we have to aggregate that data and that view. So we start with core personas. We look at department, you know, are they IT and technical or are they more business focused? We do look at products, you know, what do they own of our portfolio? What type of business is obviously industry and, and vertical is very important as well. And so we take all of these different insights into account as we're designing out the strategy. Sounds like there's a lot of data in play and, and a lot of alignment across the entire organization with this. Now, I know part of this transformation involved you tapping Johan Reed, who was at the time the head of content marketing to assist in re- revamping the event. Why... Johan, and how did you position this opportunity? Traditionally, as event marketers, we've built events and filled them with content. And like I said earlier, you know, the course of my career was changed by content at an event. And I always say that if we don't focus enough on the content and what's inside, it's like an empty picture frame, right? The experience can be great, but nobody cares what the picture frame looks like if there isn't a picture in it. And so if we wanted to achieve these outcomes of customer first and outcome oriented, we had to lead with content. And so Johan was leading content marketing and, you know, smart, savvy businessman. He understood that events matter at SAP, they especially Sapphire, it is that lighthouse moment in the year. You know, our executives talk about Sapphire all the time. And so he saw this as the opportunity to create a connected content journey that lived before, during, and after the event, and to use Sapphire now as that jumping off point. It makes a lot of sense. And I know working with Johan, 
and your team that you eventually were able to distill the essence of Sapphire into five themes. Could you tell us a little bit more about these themes and how they guided the transformation of the event? Yeah, for sure. So if you think about SAP and 77% of the world's business transactions operating on our platforms, that's a lot of industries, a lot of customers. And so we needed to think about what was common? What was a common foundation that was the starting point for all of these different customers and industries and segments and so forth? And we realized that accelerating changes in the economy and society and the environment were affecting every single company, no matter their size, geography, or industry. And because of those changes, all of our customers were dealing with macro issues, the same issues, you know, maybe not all of the same issues to the same degree, but dealing with these five macro issues. So one was business model disruption. Another was data proliferation that we identified. Three was empowered customers. Four was a diverse workforce. And five was resource scarcity. You know, we all need to do more with less, whether it's natural resources, human resources, whatever it might be. Every company, no matter their industry, size, or geography, like I said, is dealing with those things. And they're impacting all areas of the business as well, not just IT, not just marketing, everywhere. So if you think about empowered customers, all of us are empowered customers. All of us are consumers in our in our daily lives and, and are used to digital technologies allowing us to demand the service, the products, whatever it might be that we want. And so think about custom-designed baseball caps that a number of years ago probably didn't exist in the mass market. It was very, very difficult to design your own uh, baseball cap. And that, if using this baseball cap analogy, that impacts all areas of the organization. It impacts how you market how you sell, how you service. It markets how you procure products. It certainly impacts how you manufacture products. And it changes your model from finance and accounting perspective. IT obviously is a big part of that. Your data flow, how all the data comes together and supports all of this. Your e-commerce models, as well as HR, the type of people that you have to hire in order to be flexible. And so we used that premise as the basis of the design around Sapphire Now and wanted to design something to help our customers capitalize on these trends to address their business challenges and then map those outcomes to our portfolio of solutions that could help them solve those business challenges. Okay, so that's like really diving into this empowered customer theme. Yeah, or or customer centricity. Customer centricity. And that's just one example, you know, of empowered customers. They're, you know, the, the mega trend of empowered customers comes to life in many different ways. And so I just mm. use that as an example of mm. how that it impacts so much within an organization and so many different departments within an organization. And that was our way to create this common thread from a strategy, a content strategy perspective for all of our diverse audiences across mm. our product sets. Great. So you came up with these themes, and then these themes guided the content throughout. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and were these, was this how, also how, say, for instance, the agenda was organized by these? Well, or, or was it more behind the scenes? No, guiding it? It, was, it was a bit of both. So, yes, the business outcomes that, you know, the, the five megatrends that we were focused on were people could segment the agenda based on those. But it was really about... It led us to the design 
of the show floor, mm. really, right? So this shift from being product-led, think about our grocery store analogy, mm. right? And all the products in, along the aisles to being business outcome-focused was a big shift for us as an organization. And so as we took this large, broad strategy of these five megatrends, the next point for us was to figure out how do we bring that to life in a physical environment. And so where we focused on was building five neighborhoods. So a neighborhood that was focused to each of these business outcomes that our customers were trying to drive. And we placed within these neighborhoods content, demo sessions, food and beverage, networking spaces. And when I say networking, it's it's facilitated through content as well, because often as an industry, we say networking is seating, and that's so not the case. <laughs> and the way content was delivered within the neighborhood was designed also to assist with networking. But Basically, with the premise that people could, you know, if in a neighborhood, people live, work, and play. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we wanted to do and capture within the Sapphire Now show floor design. So if somebody was really focused on this, just this one particular business outcome that they were trying to solve, theoretically, they could spend three days within that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And because, like, in a real city topics blend, right? Like neighborhoods blend. You don't know when you've moved from little Italy, Italy to little Portugal, if I <laughs> use my Toronto analogy. Yeah. Um, but they blend, right? And so there were, were soft borders as these neighborhoods started to blend together. We also had three product pavilions because if you, you know, as part of the shift, we've gone from being product led approach to business outcome led approach, but we need to bring our audience with us as well, right? So we did have three product-specific pavilions. So using our grocery store analogy, again, if someone wanted to go and buy milk, they could go and do that, mm. right? They could go straight to product and have a product conversation without having to wade through the content within the, each of the neighborhoods to find specifically their answer. So to answer your question, yes, it did impact the way that we set up the agenda builder as well. But at the same time, people were able to filter based on many other parameters that we looked at. So was it their persona, like their role or their, or was it product? Like it was, it's a very complex agenda builder session catalog that we built. Great. So that's one way that the attendee can sort of create their own custom journey throughout Absolutely. the event. Absolutely. You talked about business outcomes. What other things did you change? A lot. Actually, there was a lot that we changed. And while some of it was incredibly obvious, some was more behind the scenes. But sort of key areas that I want to focus on is we introduced color. And while that doesn't sound revolutionary, it was probably the thing that was noticed the most by certainly by SAP attendees to both add warmth, but also to help with navigation. We redesigned the entire show floor mentioned this million square feet of space. In the past, the main entrance, the keynote was off to the left. Well, we wanted the design of the event to be that our content and these neighborhoods were spread out in front of the attendees as they came in. So they were able to navigate and to understand the journey instantly on walking into the space. Mm. So we actually moved the keynote to the complete opposite end and side of the show floor. Turned out to be a fantastic uh, decision for multiple reasons, not least of which it meant that every single one of our attendees that was going to the keynote hall had to walk through our sponsors exhibition. So that was a way that we were able to make sure that we were driving traffic. The walls 
don't expand of the space. And each year, our company grows, we acquire new companies. And I'll talk about that in a minute, a specific example of what we designed, we were able to pivot on a little bit. But we also, we built a tent. <laughs> we had to take all of the seated food and beverage off the show floor. And we had to, we built a very, very large tent outside, which also was near the keynote area. So once again, anytime <laughs> people were going for food and beverage, they were walking through the partner. So you expanded outdoors. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So um, I'm sort of imagining this experience. It's kind of, it's part Ikea, part sort of Disney World. I'm picturing like that map there. I'm <laughs> glad that you use those, uh, those, those examples because those are exactly what we talked about in the design. How do we, and, you know, I love that about Ikea, right? Those right. journeys through that, you know, you might just be going to buy candles, but you've gone through seven rooms and want to buy several things by the time you leave that you didn't know that you needed. We had talked about that and how do we create the Ikea concept as we move people through, but also the Disney experience is just so critical, right? And so both of brands I admire greatly for that. And we did think about as we were designing that. We also introduced new content formats, um, workshops. I talked about networking, not being soft seating. Right. And while we know people go to events to meet other like-minded people. It's certainly not natural to just walk up and start a conversation for anybody. Even me, I'm the most outgoing person. But it's awkward to just start a conversation. So we knew we needed to give ways and help facilitate ways to create dialogue between attendees as well. So we introduced new content formats such as workshops and so forth and moved the content from being dialogue and interactive from what traditionally had been somewhat lecture-based. And then we tried, to your point about the IKEA and the journeys, we tried to bring all of the elements together across the event to create a customer customer journey in, a, in their language versus SAP speak, which we traditionally have a tendency to do. And, you know, we built it for flexibility, which I touched on this a, a minute ago, it, which is key for us. And I'm Glad we did for a couple reasons. One of those was that in late November, we acquired Qualtrics and really went, have subsequently gone to market in defining a brand new category called experience management. And so when we built the strategy, experience management wasn't part of our really what we were talking about from a corporate messaging and strategy perspective. By the time Sapphire came about, it was one of our core messages. So the beauty that we felt of, of designing around these business outcomes was no matter what products or what companies we bought, they still fit within these outcomes that our customers were solving for. When we talk about this transformation, I'd love to hear from you some of the lessons that you learned yes. throughout the transformation. First off, I'm just going to say it sounds like something worked. I know that SAP was recently recognized by BizBash for the best corporate event concept because of this event. Yes. And, and yesterday, were, in fact. <laughs> yesterday. And you were running up against, you know, very consumer-focused brands like HBO and Virgin Airlines. And yet, this— 47-year-old yeah, software company. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, thrilled. Thrilled. Um, and yes, it was successful. But I think the key thing is that it wasn't all— smooth sailing, right? So we've done all of this work up front and we're really focused on business outcomes that were powered by technology, really. But 60 days prior to Sapphire Now, the day that our session catalog went live, and I talked about the complexity of that, our executive board asked us 
to implement major changes to the SAP portion of the show floor. And they felt that the jump to business outcomes was too big of a departure from where we had been before and asked us to align to the lines of business we solve with our solution portfolio. So we took a deep breath, realized that Johan and I should never be on an airplane at the same time because we were both flying home from Utah that day. And what that (laughs) meant was that we had to go back to the drawing board. 60 days prior to the event, the day the session catalog was live. And when I talked about the scale and scope of the event, what I didn't mention is that it takes us 23 days to set up and 80,000 man hours to set up that show floor. So this 60-day pivot was not very far before the trucks were leaving to drive to Orlando to begin setup. So what did that mean? That meant we had to rebrief the 120-person content team. It meant we had to reassign the five neighborhoods and the three pavilions. And it meant we had to remap 900 content sessions and 150 assets and showcases. That was, it, was, it was stressful. It was a crazy scramble. The good news was that we had built the model to be agile and flexible, thinking it would be about new acquisitions that we might make coming into the portfolio. The content was relatively easy to shift because what we did, instead of being focused on the business outcomes powered by tech, like I talked about, we changed the focus slightly to being tech delivering the business outcomes. The bad news The entire show floor design needed to change. The leaders of the neighborhoods and the pavilions needed to change because they were representing, in the past, cross areas of a business versus now they were more focused on specific product areas or solution areas in our business. So the neighborhood leads had to change. The budget had certainly, there was an implication to that, but we uh, (laughs) we won't go there. Mm -hmm. And... That, like, amazingly, and I think back to it now, and I just huge kudos to our entire team. 12 days after receiving the direction for change, we rolled out the new session catalog and the new direction. Wow. Yep. That's quick. That is amazing. Um, like I said, we've got a phenomenal team working on this, and hats off to them for living through yeah. what was quite chaotic for, yeah, for a that, short time. Uh, uh, required quite a, a bit of midnight oil uh, being Yes, worked. yeah. few days without showers, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yes. So, I mean, all of this, it's, it's amazing to hear that, especially in light of what I have seen to be the success of the event. And of course, these awards are also great opportunities of recognition, but... <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> It's the story uh, behind the story. But there's the story behind the story, Absolutely. but that wasn't even, you know, part of this the, the criteria for the, mm-hmm. the award. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If there was that, a chaos award, we'd win that too. <laughs> <laughs> there should be a chaos award. Uh, moving a new forward. category. A lot was going on. You had to manage a lot of change very quickly, not only sort of pivoting the direction of the event, but then also having to re-pivot it again at very short notice. Now that it's all done, What are some key lessons that you learned through this experience? Yeah, a lot. I think one that's really stuck with me is that backing up isn't the same as going backwards. 
And, you know, when we received that direction, I was incredibly disappointed. But it was okay in the end, and it worked out fine. And that concept of backing up, not being the same as going backwards, is a, is a mountain climbing analogy. You know, if you're climbing Everest, you go from base camp to the first camp and then back down because you have to acclimatize. So, you know, we as a team have really embraced that concept. This was big change. This was monumental change. And I mentioned earlier, this is one part of a long journey. So it was okay. So that acceptance, that backing up wasn't going backwards. The other thing was our president of corporate marketing uses this expression, and I think it's fantastic in terms of a lesson that we learned, was don't boil the frog. We turned the heat up really quickly. And while we were being asked to be innovative and to push the envelope, change that is that monumental takes time, right? We're a large company. We're a large organization. It's a large event. It takes time to change the direction of the ship. And so, you know, this don't boil the frog analogy is, you know, you put the frog in the water and you turn the heat up a little, a little bit, a little bit by little bit. And, and incremental change, while maybe not as fast as we would have hoped for, is okay, as well. And, you know, we're going to continue to change. We've we demonstrated that the change was incredibly successful this year. And so that gives us the opportunity to continue that change within our journey. So, I mean, there are so many lessons. I mm. think this isn't new to anybody, but, you know, people support change as long as it doesn't happen to them. Mm. And so not lesson learned, but a reality that, you know, we lived through. And then I think probably... One of the bigger lessons was that our CMO has stakeholders as well. And we mm. need to really make sure that we're equipping her to make sure that her stakeholders are successful and understand the change in the direction. And then lastly, this is for anyone, don't try and do it alone. It takes a village. When, when I was tasked to change this, if I hadn't tapped on the expertise of Johan and many, many others in the organization we wouldn't have been successful in getting to where we were today. So, you know, find the right people, find the right resources to support. Speaking of that, I know that you are still currently working with Johan in the event strategy. Could you tell us a little bit about how that relationship has evolved? Yeah, he's my boss now. Um, so <laughs> I mentioned that I was the leader of the team for seven months and he took over the role. And I just think it's a huge testament to the fact that the company saw the value in alignment between content and events. And so essentially they collapsed our two teams into one under Johan's leadership. Wow. So mm -hmm. still working, it's it's the that bond between the events and the content is even stronger. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the foundation of of our strategy. And that has now permeated into every event that we do, certainly through our team, and we're starting to roll that out through the organization. Lead with content, lead with customer. Fantastic. Well, in a process that's going to be a lot faster than pivoting Sapphire now, I'd love to pivot this conversation to about you a little bit more and to sure. speak about your background. One of the things is that I know that you have spoken on some women in events panels before, produced by Event Marketer, did this back at EMS, and you were named to be one of the top 15 women in events, and that you also are attending another event this week. With that in mind, uh, I'm curious, from your experience, uh, what do you find to be really valuable about the conversation that happens in this event? And what have been some of your takeaways? 
It was really interesting. Last year when I went to this, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And like you mentioned, I was named as a top 15 women in events. And we did a roundtable interview together and then spoke on a panel together later that afternoon and also spoke on a panel at the Experiential Marketing Summit in May in Las Vegas on the same topic. And it was probably one of the most rewarding experiences for me personally in my professional career. Just being able to share stories, vulnerabilities with others in the industry and success stories. We all think everybody else has got it all figured out. We talk about work-life balance and how do you do it all. And there is no easy answer. None of us have the answers, but we can learn from each other from what works for, for each of us. And so it's just that raw honesty and vulnerability that all of us were able to express as panelists, as well as the audience and the dialogue that it created was just was so rewarding. Fantastic. And I know that earlier you mentioned that taking some time away on maternity leave and made you a better leader. Mm -hmm. Could you speak on that? Sure. So I actually took three years out of my career to be a mom and Stayed home with my kids. It wasn't all rosy, so I don't want to paint a picture that it was the most idyllic moment of my life. I mean, two small children. But I am so glad that I did that, that I took the time. It was what was right for me. It was what was right for my family. It wasn't necessarily a conscious decision that I would take that time off. We have a year of maternity leave in Canada, and I have my kids back to back, so it just worked out that way. But it has made me a better leader, more, I think, more patient. Also more accepting of the need to create balance, right? I, I mentioned that before, that there is no such thing as work-life balance. I don't believe, I think it's, you know, the term today is work-life integration, and, and I believe in that. You know, sometimes my family takes more focus, sometimes my professional life takes more focus, and we have to be able to ride those tides and be flexible. So as a leader, that's my philosophy and something that I like to think that I bring to work every day and role model as an example to those within our organization. Wonderful. With all of this knowledge, this experience you've had throughout your career, if you could go back earlier on and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. In fact, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And that's okay. When I started out in the working world, you know, people said you had to have a career path. You had to know what you wanted to be and where you wanted to go and have your five-year plan mapped out. I never did. And I always worried about that. But I don't think I needed to. You know, I trusted my instinct. I trusted my gut. I trusted what was right and followed those instincts. And if it didn't work out, it was a lesson learned. And so I think looking back, I advice I would give to anybody is find your passion, and the, the path will follow you versus you having to follow something that's created and set out. A huge thanks to Nicola for joining us and thank you for listening. One thing that really struck me about Nicola's story was how just 60 days before the doors opened for Sapphire Now, she and Johan were tasked with dramatically pivoting the content and experience of the event. By this point, they had already put a lot of thought into how the event was going to be transformed, and they had guided their team into implementing this massive transformation. Then, in the final hour, they were required to turn it on a dime. Not only was the Sapphire Now team successful in making these last-minute changes, in 12 days no less, 
They also managed to get it done so seamlessly that the event went on to net praise and even an award. To me, this is a lesson in the beautiful balance between ambition and compromise, vision and adaptability. It's a humbling reminder of how volatile the events industry can be and the grit that so many event marketers have to push on through it. If you have any feedback for the show, please drop us a line at in-person at bizbo.com. We always, always, always look forward to hearing what you have to say. You can also find full transcripts of the show along with key takeaways at inpersonpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Brandon Raffleson. This has been In Person, and shout out to all the Excel nerds out there. You make the world go round.